I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I really dislike phrases like cathartic to describe songwriting process because I feel like it deprives the artist of their agency. And historically, too, these are words that are oftentimes more deployed to describe the work of women and queer people. Welcome to Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. That was Owen Pallett you just heard. He's an award-winning, classically trained musician. and You might also know him under his name, Final Fantasy. We talked to Owen about all sorts of things, like meeting your heroes, um, treating music as a business, and even the Oscars. You'll hear that conversation later in the show. But first, Trana, something very monumental that <laughs> happened a few weeks ago. Your first time seeing Celine Dion in concert. And I never thought I would ever end up at a Celine concert. Why? Because I've always hated her. (laughs) It's the last place I ever thought I would find myself. And just to be clear, we did not pay for the tickets. We got them for free through some very generous friends. And so now we're joined with some of her fans here this evening, Thomas and Trana. Good Hi. evening. Thank you. I'm not actually a fan. I, I'm a fan, but we're friends. And we it was a seven time for me seeing her. So <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a habit at this point. So I was really excited to see you see her. Well, I didn't know how exciting it was going to be to see you see her as well, because you were so much more excited than I realized. So, And I've never been to a concert with you before. That's true. Like you really lose your mind. I went crazy. So this was at the Bell Centre, which doubles as a hockey arena for the Montreal Canadiens. The show starts with this hilarious video montage of her putting makeup on. There's not even any makeup on the brushes, okay? And it's like her in the mirror. It's just such a cliche. And Celine rises from, you know, underneath the stage and she's wearing the sequined red dress and everyone's going crazy. And she starts with, it's all coming back to me now. Can you believe she starts with the most epic song of the catalog? And that's why I love her. She's not afraid to go. She just goes for it. She goes for it. So it's so interesting because the Celine mania is bigger than ever right now. It's, I know. Has... I didn't really believe it until the show and her album hitting number one. I'm like, wow, people are really invested in her again in a way they haven't been in a long time. I don't know what, what, what it why is, do you though. think that is? I don't know. Is it because she's being more real with us? And we're seeing her sort of experience of freedom that she's never had because Renee has made all the decisions for her entire career. Because now in And she said at the show, this is the first show that I've actually had a part in creating, which is insane. That's insane. Yeah. To people who are not close scholars as we are, (laughs) or close observers of Celine, it's been a long way. And I think for me, it really started actually 12 years ago when they rebranded her Vegas show. They changed her outfits and a sort of a sense of fashion started to get because before that it was, I mean, it was a catastrophe. Yeah. Like her fashion, her aesthetic, everything was a catastrophe. And then gradually 
you know, through like small steps and, you know, working with Sia, for example, on a song in 2013 or being name dropped by Kanye in 2010 and like these little things. And then really the turning point was in 2016 when her husband and manager Rene Angelou died. It was a really emotional and intense moment for her, but she broadcasted that right. moment. Because I don't think the American audience cared about no. Renee's passing. Like, that didn't really mean anything to them. The fans But cared. it's what happened after. So because she's... that's when the major fashion moments started happening. And in a way, it's kind of interesting if you parallel, you know, like we're coming to the end of a decade, yeah. you know? And for me... You know, this is a decade that has gotten progressively more and more vacuous. And in a way, it kind of makes sense that Celine, this like universally appealing person that you can project whatever you want on, is so in tune with the spirit of social media and how you can cultivate anything that you want. Like when she's in different international markets, like the way she speaks French in France is different than the way she speaks French when she's in Quebec. The way she speaks English in Asia is different from the way she speaks English in America. One thing that I find fascinating with stars like Celine is their relationship with audience when they say that they love the audience. Well, that's a very Celine thing. Like when you no, go to all, a bar- when you go that. to a Barbara Streisand concert, people yell, <laughs> "I love you, Barbara," and all she says is, "Thank you." <laughs> she never says, "I love she you." She never too. says, "I love you." Because Celine says, "I love you too." And one thing that Renee really ingrained in her is the idea of customer service. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, like, yes. and I think she's just a really good customer service representative for her own <laughs> brand. <laughs> Merci beaucoup d'être là. Vous êtes simplement The generational divide within the Celine fan base is really, really interesting to me because the ticket price is it's quite expensive to go see her. So, of course, I think it skews older when you go to a concert yes. because people are going to spend $300 for a ticket. The audience at the Montreal show was v- like the average age was 50. But what's interesting is that at the concert, so many of the people of our age were getting into fights with these older people. And <laughs> Which, like, is that a reflection like of like where we're at right now? <laughs> it was like, a real OK Boomer it, moment. It was such an OK Boomer moment. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, the OK Boomer thing is a hashtag that's allowed grievances at Boomers, you know, specifically like, you know, boomers who are in positions of power within politics and within commerce who are making the world such a horrible, horrible place. So what happened was we we are at our seats. They're really great tickets. I would say we were like the 15th row up the side section uh, of the arena. And second song is a, is, a, is a French song, and I'm super excited. So I stand up. Everybody in front of us is standing up and dancing. Yeah, it was a mood. And then this man, who I assume is a baby boomer. I, oh, he was. Yeah, <laughs> grabs me by the shoulders, and he's like... You don't have to stand. He's being super aggressive. I know. And I know you got scared. Well, I was just thrown off because his wife, I'm assuming, (laughs) also tapped me on the shoulder, too. She wasn't quite as aggressive. And and we weren't the jerks standing up in the middle. No, our whole section was standing. It's like, this is a a concert. It's a second song. It's like her first night in Montreal. Like, we're going to sit during the ballads. Calm down. So anyways, the usher is like, what the hell is going on? 
So they brought us down to the floor. I mean, it wasn't only just the floor. We were in the what is the penalty box, I yeah, think, exactly. for the Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> I don't do sports. I don't know. But we're in this like sort of VIP-ish box on the side of the floor, basically 10 rows away from the, from the stage. But what was so hilarious is that there were these two other <laughs> girls in the box And they were there because they had also gotten into an altercation with the elderly people around them in their original seat. And then towards the end of the show, two other troublemakers came to join us. The girl kept looking at the person she had had the altercation with and giving them the finger. Like, she wouldn't let it go. In a way, it was like... The Celine concert was this battleground <laughs> for the OK Boomer hashtag to sort of work itself out in person, which was kind of hilarious. That was great. And I was not expecting that at a Celine show. Also, this decade for her and her personal life, there was the passing of Renee, but there was also the birth of her twins at the beginning of the decade, Nelson and Eddie. I don't think she's really aware of gender construction or gender discourse, or but she just said she wanted her kids to be free. Yeah. And she launched a fashion line that's gender inclusive, and she's famous for letting her kids decide when they want to cut their hair. Yeah. They're little boys, right. but if they want to wear you know, sparkling silver heels, they can do that. So she's very, very open to the gender expression of right. her children. Yeah. But and it's sort of amazing how also like her obliviousness, because I don't think she understands the real impact of that, you know. And, well, she's not an academic. No, exactly. She never was and she never but will be. It's kind of crazy how her obliviousness to social issues, politics, the internet has served her so well because in a way she's been able to move through all of those things so organically yeah. versus if you compare her to Madonna who's so hyper aware of how she thinks everything is working against her she has not been able to evolve so we are here in 2019 and Celine Dion is cooler and more successful than Madonna right now i mean i still will not admit that Celine is cooler Celine to me is never going to be, has never been cool. The audience at that show is proof of that. <laughs> I was really happy she sang Ziggy. So Ziggy is probably the most iconic French queer pop song. It tells a story of this girl who falls in love with a gay guy who works in a record store. My grandmother gave me that tape and she passed away recently. So when Celine was singing Ziggy at the concert, I was just thinking Aww. of like me, like as a seven year old, like realizing that I was different, listening to that song. And so all, a lot of memories came up. Yeah, I didn't really have any memories. <laughs> <laughs> I really tried to shut Celine out of the right. picture of my life when I was mm -hmm. younger. Like a family friend gave me a CD copy of her Falling Into You album for my birthday when I was like around 11 or 12 years old. And I asked for the receipt and returned it. <laughs> and But again, like I was just really surprised by the emotions that I felt at the show, especially during All By Myself, when she hits that superhuman note. Like I've seen all of her concert films and that moment in her live shows has always made me laugh because yeah. it's so <laughs> ridiculous. She does these karate chops in self-praise of herself. <laughs> but witnessing... Her do that note. She sings. Live. It's not a track. I almost started crying. It's not a track. Don't wanna be all by myself anymore. 
in a lot of ways, she has to be treated almost more like an actress than as a musician who writes her material about her life story. Because the material that she was given was kind of applied to her life. Right. Applied to, like Courage, the title of the new record. <laughs> is I don't Maybe she came up with it, but she didn't write the song. No. There's a song titled Courage. Yeah. Which is the other irony, though, is that like just her co-opting the word courage. And it's like what you're a rich, a rich white woman who had to bury a husband. Courage. Yeah, but I think, you know, I think a lot of people's lives depend on her business. Yes. It's not only her, you know, like it's uh, the people who tour with her. It's to be like it's, it's a lot of people. Um, so I think going into this whole cycle again, she had to find the strength in herself to kind of not do it on her legacy because she could have done that but she decided to have a new cycle and have a new album new songs and i think that's what she meant by courage is the courage to uh, self-actualize can we also just say that finally after 40 years in the industry she finally got her hair right oh, it looked blonde, amazing that blonde bob it looked yeah so good yeah i never thought i'd ever see so many things i never <laughs> thought i think it all happened that night So to be completely honest, when we first were talking about having Owen Pallet on Chosen Family, I was like kind of nervous to talk to him. Owen is just so smart and accomplished that to me, it's it's really intimidating. And composing music is, to me, such a mystical skill. It is. Pallet studied classical violin and he composes first piece at the age of 13. And I can't help but make parallels with Celine because from a really early age they were both like prodigies who knew what they wanted to do they knew they wanted to 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 have a career in music and do that their whole life and in addition to his own work um, Owen has done string and orchestral arrangements for some of the music industry's like biggest artists um, just to name a few he's worked with the Pet Shop Boys Duran Duran REM Frank Ocean Taylor Swift <laughs> and of course Arcade Fire he used to perform under the name Final Fantasy, and it was under the Final Fantasy project that he actually won the 2006 Polaris Music Prize for an album that I think has a hilarious title. The album is called He Poo's Clouds. What an image. What an image. <laughs> and it's so cute because now his Instagram handle is He Posts Clouds, which is so cute. Adorable. A little bit of a heads up. We do talk about struggles with mental health in this conversation. In the end, I have to admit, Owen wasn't nearly as intimidating as I thought he would be, thankfully. And it was honestly one of the most memorable interviews for me that we've done this season. From the moment we started talking, he was really generous and so quick to open up. Owen, we're just going to check your levels. So please tell us what you had for breakfast. Uh, this morning, I went over to uh, my the house that until very recently I shared with my ex-boyfriend. Um, and I had brought him an Americano and we had a berry muffins. I brought them for him. And, uh, we spoke about, uh, the dog that we once shared together. And then, uh, towards the end of the conversation, I asked him if, uh, how he was feeling. And he said that he missed me very much, but that he was not really interested in, uh, reinitiating our relationship. And I told him that I was amenable to getting back together, but that, of course, I would leave the ball in his court. Oh, my God, what a morning. 
Yeah. And I then re- I spoke to my therapist about how I actually want to move back into that place and kick him out. <laughs> <laughs> I relate. Also, yeah. also uncoupled recently. It's really hard. I mean, I'm seeing a new guy and he's really wonderful, but I really thought I was going to be spending the rest of my life with this guy and I miss him every 90 seconds. Mm. You have so much to unpack and I really want to start with Final Fantasy. Uh, That's when I first sort of entered your world. I want to talk about specifically the cover of Mariah Carey's Fantasy because Trana, my co-host, is an incredible Mariah fan. (laughs) (laughs) A big Mariah fan. I love your version of it. Thank you. Are you an actual Mariah fan? Yeah. In fact, I was talking with um, a friend of mine the other day, and we agreed that the three living gods in this world are Diamanda Galas and Mary Margaret O'Hara and Mariah Carey. Funnily enough, I mean, I I have not made the acquaintance of Mariah Carey, but both Diamanda and Mary Margaret O'Hara agree. Like well, they're Mariah both, would both agree huge to. fans of each other and of Mariah Carey. So. That's so interesting because I think sometimes Mariah gets overlooked by, you know, I think people that take music very seriously tend to not fully appreciate Mariah and her abilities. Well, um, she also creates worlds. Yeah. Like there's a world, there's a utopian quality. Uh, I've been following you since the early 2000s. I'm, I'm 34. So you were part of that early wave of indie rock in the early 2000s in, in Montreal and Toronto. And you've used the term utopian futures to describe the worlds that you create with the music. What do you mean by utopian futures? I guess it's largely because I was kind of uh, reading fantasy fiction a lot when I was a kid. It left a big impression on me, especially the way that unique really to fantasy fiction, when you read it, they have these maps. So you can track the movements of the protagonists of the novel through the map. And typically too, you know, over the course of a longer series, you know that every corner of that map is going to be covered. Like you know that they will make it to those islands way out over there. I think this really kind of like informed the way that I wanted to make records. Even though I don't provide people with a literal map, I really wanted the narratives within my albums kind of take place in a discrete world that kind of had its own logic and its own scenery and its own uh, myth. Do you think there's an inherent queerness in the idea of utopian futures and fantasy? I feel like what you're describing, especially when it comes to video games and just the idea of creating your own fantasy world, there is... It's something that draw, it seems to draw queer people in. I think you could view it through that lens. I kind of am a little hesitant to just uh, view everything through a queer lens. <laughs> in fact, you know, I have always said that, you know, there's a lot of great queer art that's made by heterosexuals. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know, think queerness I, is way more about taste than it is about sexuality. My running definition of it is at a certain point, queer people have to uh, make an active decision to prioritize the needs of their body over societal convention mm. um, and that this is inherently a, um, a kind of an anti-establishment, anti-traditional sort of decision. As a result, I just feel as if that people will kind of have a criticality towards institutions and I think that that leaks through in a lot of queer art. But you can also see it track through uh, people who may not necessarily identify as queer I mean, um, a good example for me is John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats. I think his music is very, very queer, although he uh, he's married with kids. <laughs> I want to read 
something that I came across where you described your daily creative routine. It was an interview that you actually did a few years ago, and I want to see how much of it is still true to, to your process. So here it is. Typically, I spend the morning with coffee and oatmeal, writing lyrics and enjoying the internet. I visit the gym every day at 10.30 a.m., not for the guns, but to keep the crazy away. I write and or record all afternoon, but stop around 6 or 7 p.m. and cook dinner while listening to records. In the evening, I'll have cocktails with friends or see a concert or stay in and play video games. I do not take days off except once a month to go shopping and in the winter when I might take a few days of skiing. Yeah, that's... That must have been from 2012. <laughs> and so how much has changed? Oh, a great deal has changed. Mm -hmm. 2012 was actually kind of a very um, productive and positive year for me. I uh, moved to Montreal. Um, my then boyfriend and I were going through a rough time. Uh, his mother was um, ill and she ended up passing in uh, 2013, which was a tragedy. But I was in actually a, a good space and so was he. Yeah, there, it was just a very good and productive time in my life. It was kind of before my mental health just really fell off the edge of the table. <laughs> Do you feel that being productive in that case meant is, 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 is a good thing for you to keep busy and to have a sense of purpose and why you do what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the song I'm Not Afraid was born from that period of time when I just really felt as if I'd kind of found um, happiness in discipline and just keeping to a schedule. Well, I mean, I think we're all sort of trained to create this link between our worth and our productivity, and it's really hard to deprogram that. Yeah, I suppose so. I feel like I've kind of gotten a little past that where now it's like my automatic state is a state of productivity. You know, I often, I, I have said before that it's just like music, just I shit it. Like it just comes out like at this point, I don't even need to really concentrate. It just is like a constant state of, of uh, creative exercise. You have your own body of work, but you're also an incredible collaborator to so many acts, of course, Arcade Fire that you've worked with um, since the beginning, but also Fucked Up, that, which is a Canadian hardcore band, Robbie Williams, uh, Taylor Swift. And to me, it's like very impressive how they are from so many different genres. Is that something you've consciously tried to do or you to avoid categorization or you just like followed your heart and then really second guess yourself? Um, I typically don't very often seek out clients. Um, most of these uh, gigs, they're just kind of coming to me. Um, oftentimes, it's somebody who's collaborating with the artist who recommends me. Um, so in the case of Taylor Swift, it was, it was Jackknife Lee. Um, I have never met Taylor Swift. I've entirely worked with uh, with um, Jackknife on that one. Um, but Robbie Williams and I, we were in studio um, far longer than I would have preferred That's um. hilarious. I have to admit, for a long time, Robbie was like my major celebrity crush. Is there a moment in that process that stands out to you as particularly memorably horrible or wonderful? He was actually very lovely, but he started talking trash about Courtney Love, and that is oh no, that crosses the line. I, <laughs> I think sometimes there's this idea that you know meeting your heroes can be really risky. Have you had moments where you've gotten to meet? some of your heroes and what has that been like? I have always thought that 
there's an inherent toxicity towards people um, having higher expectations of individuals who are perhaps more visible. Mm. Um, and I have, I, I've, res- I've never felt fandom my entire life, except maybe for an instant when I was 15, you know, towards like people like Bjork and Tori Amos. And um, ever since I became a professional musician, I've tried to make myself very available to people and be online and be available to for people to send an email to in the hopes that this availability would humanize me. And it has not been all that successful. <laughs> there are people out there who are just kind of crazy. Um, that people that have taken advantage of your accessibility? Oh, yeah, mm. extremely. But um, yeah, it's... I, I, when I'm dealing with um, musicians, I, I kind of just don't really have any more expectations uh, out of them than I would out of somebody coming over to clean my oven, you know? I, right. I just, <laughs> I love just, they're, they're, well, they're just, just humans. Just for the record yeah, also, like you've met David Bowie, so you had no more expectations at the time towards Bowie than to the person who came to clean your oven? Well, Bowie was a little different. Right. <laughs> I mean, Bowie was very special. It was like he was born into the public eye. He had this capacity to just make anyone feel at ease and um his his charisma was so um generous. It was never um inwardly looking. It was always outward. He was just so naturally curious about absolutely everyone. I kind of wish I had that capacity. <laughs> But the capacity to... To be really that into other people. I'm kind of, uh, I'm a little uh, selfish with uh, my emotions. (laughs) (laughs) But it also sounds like you mentioned a moment ago, it sounds like you did try to make yourself available to people and having that sort of backfire. So how do you feel like you interact now with either your fans or fellow musicians? Uh, Well, uh, without going into too much detail, I've had, some extremely traumatic experiences with um, people who uh, I thought were my friends and um, reveal themselves to actually have um, kind of ulterior motives. I found it absolutely devastating and it took an incredible toll on my mental health. As a result, I've, I've recently been a lot more um, private. Mm. What has been interesting has been when speaking to um, female friends and uh, friends who are of color. uh, It's almost as if I was kind of privileged my entire life to not develop these kind of defense mechanisms to really keep the creeps out Mm. because, you know, women are required to develop these kind of mechanisms from quite early on just because of how many shitty men there are out there. Is this why also you stopped posting on Twitter? Like you were really engaged with the platform and the community there. Yeah, I was going through a really, really hard time in early 2018 and, um, Um, That actually uh, culminated in a suicide attempt. And uh, uh, it was around that time that I just decided I needed to generally just kind of take space from social media because not only was um, the uh, discourse that I was reading there kind of putting my mind into um, bad places, but I was finding that I was leaving myself open to individuals that had the intention of causing me harm. How do you take care of yourself now? Um, I see a therapist uh, twice a week, um, and I'm, I'm on some kind of medications to keep me level-headed, uh, just like um, mild doses of um, lithium and uh, lamotrigine and stuff like that, which is good for people with an artistic temperament. Um, <laughs> what it, sign are you? Are you? You must be a water sign. No. <gasps> Try again. Air. Nope. Oh my God! Fire. Fire? No. Come on, <laughs> I mean, are the you violence. A 
No, I'm not. I wish I was a Taurus. <laughs> we suck. I'm a Virgo, which I thought you would guess. I'm very, very typical Virgo. I get it. <laughs> Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now, what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. As much as I want to, I can't live in your book anymore. Let's talk about your work on the movie Her. Where are you going? This is a sort of sci-fi romance starring Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson, directed by Spike Jones, the renowned filmmaker. And you wrote and scored the music for the movie and got an Oscar nomination for it. Yeah, that would have been in the summer of uh, 2013. I have very vivid memories of biking around Montreal with Spike Jones. It was really fun. He came over to my place in Mile End, and um, at a certain point we needed to get down to the studio which was uh more in the neighborhood and so we just got some bikes and bike down the hill so spike jones he's obviously close with arcade fire and 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 will butler was also working with you on that score just to be quite clear uh, the reason why will is cre- and i are credited as uh, writing that score was simply a result of the academy at the time not uh, accepting more than one name on a score uh, arcade fire were not permitted to submit their band name as the creators of the score. So um, they picked the two people that they felt contributed the most to the score, which was Will and myself. I think they also kind of like included me because they knew that it would have a, as, as I'm like an active film composer, they knew that an Oscar nomination would be a boon to my career. And so it was very generous of them to do it. But um, Arcade Fire, I think worked on that score for a year before I even got involved and uh, I think they also wanted, they know that I'm a abrasive person. <laughs> Are you? Um, I wouldn't say, actually, abrasive is what one person used to describe me, but I'm unreservedly uh, assertive. <laughs> right. In, like, in a gentle way. I'm not aggressive or anything like that, but I'm not afraid to tell people when their idea is wrong and, mm-hmm. and tell people that it's time to get this done, let's finish it. And I think that's really what they needed at the time because they, they felt like the score had been just taking a long time. They wanted to introduce a foreign element and somebody who did not really care about his friendship with Spike Jones to tell him his ideas were bad. Um, <laughs> and Spike and I definitely did butt heads. Um, I remember at a certain point, he even kind of smiled at me and said with a certain amount of acidity, he said, well, Owen, when you direct your own feature, then you can make that decision, you know. Um, Spike and I still remain friends. We email from time to time, but there's some gentle conflict. Do you feel like you have to shift your role depending if it's your show, your album versus when you're obviously collaborating, scoring, and how do you adjust to these roles? When I'm collaborating with other artists, we're working towards a common goal, which is a very, a very strong piece of music. And I'm always deferring to their better judgment. I, I don't even feel any sense of disappointment if I do full orchestral arrangement, track it, send it, do all the mixing, do all the editing, send it to the client, and then they just delete it. They just don't use it. Working, however, on film scores is a very different process because there are so many uh, cooks in the kitchen. I mean, I'm actually involved in a project right now where this is happening, 
and it's wall-to-wall orchestral music. It's 110 minutes, and I think there's probably 100 minutes of music in there. Wow. It's taken me many, many months to get it completed. But right now I'm really struggling because I've rewritten the opening cue and I wrote it absolutely perfectly and they don't like it and they're wrong and there's nothing <laughs> I can do about it. I honestly want to fire the entire world into the sun. Right <laughs> um, what you're describing and all the work that goes into scoring a film and you know when it's all completed and you get something like an Academy Award nomination, does it actually mean something to you? Did you actually go to the Oscars? I did. Yeah, I went. Um, that was the year that Frozen was a big winner. Right. And, <laughs> and it was it was pretty thrilling, to, uh, to be honest. Like, let it go. It's oh, wait, like, so were you, you were there the night that John Travolta mispronounced Adina's name? Yeah. I <laughs> so, but they have these two boxes by the side of the stage. Um, so when your category is to be announced, they um, move two of the nominees over to the box on the left and three of the nominees over to under the box on the right. So, and there were six of us this year, because remember, Will and I were both nominated, so I guess it was three and three. In our box, we were sharing it with uh, Alexandre Duplat. Here are the nominees for Best Original Score. Philomena by Alexandre Desplat. Her by William Butler and Owen Pallett. Saving Mr. Banks by Thomas Newman. The Book Thief by John Williams. Gravity by Stephen Price. Everyone knew Stephen was going to win for Gravity, like, and that score is really fantastic. Stephen Price, Gravity. So Stephen did win, and uh, Will and I felt uh, Alexandra's uh, hands on our shoulders, and he leaned over and he says, So long, losers. (laughs) (laughs) How do you feel about treating music as a business? Do you feel like you have to be in service of the consumer? I often talk about like the industrialization of one's creative process and how it's important to do so if you wish to be a professional musician. Mm. You kind of have to let go of, and a lot of people don't. You know, you speak to, I've said, how many times have I spoken to an artist and pointed out that, you know, a lyric is not strong or, you know, a song should be cut from a record and they've responded, well, this song means a lot to me. This lyric means a lot to me. And I'm like, it's not about you. <laughs> You're making music for them. Do you feel I, that way when you're making your own album, that you're not making it for you, that you're making it for the people who are listening? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I am making it to prove something to myself, but uh, again, I'm a Virgo. Criticism is the highest form of love. Like. <laughs> <laughs> really interesting to hear you say that because I sort of read the stories behind albums. It's always seemed like such a selfish process, like the idea of like album as confession and like people using it as a kind of diary. I really dislike people uh, using phrases like confessional or cathartic to describe songwriting process because I feel like it deprives the artist of their agency, you know, and Mm. and, and historically, too, these are words that are oftentimes more deployed to describe the work of women and queer people, suggesting that, you know, we are so (laughs) possessed by our need to express our emotions that, (laughs) you know, we aren't capable of creating sustainable product (laughs) (laughs) yeah and saleable product and i mean this is just my politic you could put me in a room with fiona apple and she'd be like shut the hell up (laughs) like my my music like or tori amos for example yeah she calls calls her songs her little girls you know and i'm like i can't relate my songs are these things that i make and i mean i draw on personal experience i do want to elicit emotional response but ultimately they're this is a transaction they're a separate thing from you 
Yeah, it's a burger. I made you a burger, and you know, mm. <laughs> I love a good burger. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, I just want to end on. <laughs> wow, I know <laughs> how um, dramatic. I feel like it ties in well to what we're just talking about. How do you feel about Christmas albums? <laughs> um, is there a Christmas album you actually like? I I love Snowed In by Hanson. Hanson the the brothers? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm actually not like some sort of twink chasing handsome fan. <laughs> it's not my taste. They're um, no longer twinks. They still have that kind of... <laughs> they still got a twunky sort of twunkiness to them. So what um, do you like about that record? It's just a really... It's really joyous and really fun. I listen to it every Christmas. But I'm general, so excited to rediscover it. What do you plan to do during the holidays? Um, well, every New Year's, um, I have an open house because New Year's Day is the day that you wake up hungover and there's no food in the house and you realize everything is closed. So for me, New Year's Day is the day that I've spent the day before cooking enough food for 80 people wow. so that people can just come over and hang out and That's so nice. nurse their hangovers and drink a black velvet and kind of restore themselves back to life. Oh, I love that so much. What a great way to start the year. Well, it kind of came out of, I used to do the parties on New Year's Eve, but then they, they got the reputation for being where people go to do drugs and seedy things right. to each other. So I wasn't a participant. So so you've rebranded. I rebranded. I'm now, <laughs> now no longer dabbling in black magic. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing the white magic stuff, yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Owen. It was such a joy. Well, thank you, Trana, and thank you, Thomas. It's It's been lovely talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Owen Pallet. He was recorded in the CBC Studios in Toronto. And you can look out for Owen's new album coming out in the spring. And I mean, he has such an incredible back catalog that is just waiting for you to discover it. Owen is such a true artist, and it was such an honor that he opened up to us about some of his struggles. If you're struggling with mental health issues, you can check out the Canadian Mental Health Association for a great list of resources and information. Their website is cmha.ca. We will also post the YouTube video of Owen doing his amazing cover of Mariah Carey's Fantasy on our Facebook group. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? Trana, what are you obsessed with? Um, I'm almost embarrassed to admit what I'm obsessed <laughs> with, but I'm just going to own it. I am obsessed with Gucci's new 2020 cruise collection commercial. It's just this insane, over-the-top montage set to Giorgio Moroder's Midnight Express. So it's just this, like, glitzy 80s coke den where Gucci Mane and Sienna Miller are going to this, like, Malibu party. It's just a montage of, like... 80s decadence but to such a glamorous it looks extreme a, it looks a little bit you know sometimes these like party music videos what they wish yes, they looked like exactly that looks like that there's still a part of me that's very drawn to exaggerated and excessive glamour as toxic as i know it is I still can't help but feel, like, inspired. Well, you know the musical genre, Italo Disco. Yes, which I love. So I think that, that because I watched a clip as well, and I think that clip really embodies that idea of 
like Italian decadence being so much more over the top than any other form of decadence. I think it also really conveys just this idea of carelessness. Mm-hmm. And I'm such a careful person. <laughs> so to see people just dive into the you deep ex- end. So you experience catharsis through Gucci. Uh, definitely. <laughs> The way that I found my way to this Gucci video is because there's a model in it named Benedetta Barzini, who we actually got to talk to at the RIDM Film Festival in Montreal. We did a live Chosen Family recording. And Benedetta is the subject of her son's documentary, which is called The Disappearance of My Mother. It's all about her early 60s modeling career, being on the cover of Italian Vogue and being in American Vogue and being part hanging of Andy out. Warhol's yeah, factory. Out the factory. That but was crazy. even yeah. though she was in the middle of just the craziest time in New York, the 60s and early 70s in New York, she was still very much an outsider and looking at this world sort of from the point of view of an observer. Benedetta's I think 77 years old now and still gorgeous. And now in her life, she is an activist professor who is so critical of the way that images operate in our culture. And part-time model. A part-time model (laughs) still, but as a job. And it's so funny to watch her. If you spot her in the video, she's wearing this like powder pink hat, holding this dog. She taps into the role so brilliantly. (laughs) And it's so funny because watching the documentary that her son made about her, we know how much she is against capitalism. And so to see her just like act this role in the Gucci video makes me laugh hysterically (laughs) because I'm like, yes, Benedetta, get that Gucci money. I'll post the video in the Facebook group and you guys can see for yourselves. And you'll actually get to hear the audio of the conversation we had with Benedetta and her son on the next episode. So look out for it. I'm so excited for you to hear it. Thomas, what are you obsessed with? Oh, my God. I'm obsessed with a very different kind of content. Okay. So earlier this season, we spoke to Ryan O'Connell, creator of Special. Ryan lives with Cerebral Palsy. And it really opened the door for me to think about disability in a way that I, I haven't really thought before. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but I was like, I've never really thought of how horny people with disability can be. <laughs> you mean? <laughs> it's like... We're all horny. We're, but- all, we're all horny, but um, I was just like... In and so in the process of like trying to find information about like the sex life of queer people who live with disability, I found um, this incredible content creator. His name is Andrew Gerza. He lives in Toronto. Um, he's a consultant by day uh, who uh, consults on queerness, disability, and sexuality. But he also hosts a podcast. It's called Disability After Dark. It's a really great podcast. He really opens up. Um, and like a lot of activists, I find that to make himself heard, he has to go almost over the top in the the the, the subject matter that he brings up and the way he says things. Um, he he has a wheelchair, so he can't really access the queer spaces. Uh, let's say in Toronto where he right. lives, uh, he can't go to uh, a club that's up a flight of stairs or even to a sex club because you can't really get a wheelchair in that environment. Um, but he's very very vocal about queer people with disability and how they have a sexuality and how they should be seen as objects of desire. And and the word obsessions is mm-hmm. so interesting because I don't want to fetishize him. Right. But remember when we spoke to Ryan, he said he wanted to be objectified. And I can feel that from Andrew. Right. Um, he just released a porn scene. Wow. Yeah. With a porn actor who has like, I don't know, 26,000 followers on Twitter. Um, just a, an able-bodied hot dude. Yeah. Um, 
I find it interesting because in porn, the data and the numbers probably it, align with people's desire. Right. But then how do you change that desire? Do you educate? Like, is it right. hot to educate? So, it can be. Yeah. And, it, and that's the thing is following Andrew over the, uh, over the months. And what he says, and like a lot of people who, who do this kind of activism say is you have to listen. You have to pay attention. You have to, you have to just like take it in, and and that's what I'm doing. And over the weeks and the months, I was like, it's actually hot. What's his Instagram? Where can we find him? It's the Andrew Gerza, G U R Z A, and his podcast is called Disability After Dark. Chosen Family is produced by me, Trana Winter. And me, Thomas LeBlanc, with Crystal Duhame. Crystal also edits and mixes the show. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. The clips you heard on today's show were from various live concerts recorded by fans of Owen and Celine. I'm not actually a fan. Judy Tsigu is our digital producer. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts. And Arif Norani is the executive producer. And if you haven't already, join our Facebook group. We're hanging out there. It's so much fun. What are you waiting for? Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Vi Studio. And you can listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. We will be taking a little break for the Christmas holiday, which is also known as Mariah Carey Awareness Month. Um, (laughs) But we will be back on the 30th with some really fun bonus content. So please watch out for that. Happy holidays, everybody. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.